Many of our greatest joys in life come through relationships that we have with people, our families and loved ones and friends. You might also agree that some of our deepest pains in life come from relationships that we have with family and loved ones and friends. The reason many people are committed to a local church is often good relationships. The reason many people might leave a local church is relationships gone bad or lack of relationships. So far, so good? In fact, there are some who who would refuse to even go to any church today because they feel they've been wronged in some relationship in a church. So today we're going to talk about relationships in the church. And there will be a definite spillover to relationships beyond that as well, but we're going to talk about that because God created us for relationships. He himself is a relational God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit from all eternity. God has not been a loner. One God, three persons, Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so when he created people, he created us to desire and to, to function, if we can use that word, in relationships. And because that was so damaged with the fall of, of man into sin... When Jesus redeemed us, he didn't say, well, relationships are the problem. He redeemed us in order to enjoy the possibility of having good relationships within a church body. So we're going to look at this, um, not even coming close to saying everything there is to say about relationships, but some things that that there will be to say from Colossians chapter 3, uh, verses 12 to 17. And there's three main things the Apostle Paul says in this text. Uh, First of all, he'll talk about we put on love. We put on the love of Christ. It's living out who we are in Christ. So love and relationships in the church. Secondly, he'll talk about we let the peace of Christ rule in the church. So we'll talk about peace and relationships in the church. And then finally, Paul talks about letting Christ's word richly dwell in the church. So we'll talk about Christ's word and relationships in the church. So let's look at this text together, verses 12 to 17. And uh, as you're turning there, and it will be up on the screen, I I just want to mention what leads up to what Paul says because of his first words in this text are put on then, and then at least leads back to uh, the first 11 verses of chapter 3. So I'm just going to summarize that for you. If you have your own Bible, you can see if what I'm saying is true or false, hopefully mostly true. And what Paul says in Colossians 3, verses 1 to 11, first of all, Paul has been writing about how we live out of our identity in Christ. So by faith in Christ, we have died with him, Paul says, and been raised with him. So that's who we are in him. We've been united with him in his death and resurrection. And so that Paul says Christ is our life in verse 4. Christ is our very life. And earlier in in Colossians, he had said that Christ, uh, we are in him and he is in us. So you might think that if Christ is our life and we are in him and he is in us, that might make a difference in our lives, right? And the question is, does that happen automatically? And Paul makes it clear that it doesn't happen automatically because he gives us exhortation to put off, to put away things that are not in keeping with our identity in Christ, to put away sinful behaviors and to put on behaviors that are consistent with Christ. So It's by faith-driven effort that we live out who we are in Christ. It's not out of our own resources, but in Christ, we uh, live out who he has made us to be. 
In fact, in verses 10 and 11, he says, we have been made a new person. We are a whole new person, and that's not just us alone, but he's made us a whole new community of people, in which he says the old distinctions don't, are not um, uh, influential anymore. In, in those days, it was Greek and Jew and so on, and, and so the old divisions don't uh, apply in the church because we're, we are made a new community of, of Christ's followers, people of Christ. So that's verses 1 to 11. So that when we get to verse 12, that's what Paul says. So then, because these things are true, this is how we are to live. So let's look at this text together. He says, put on then, verse 12, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds together everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. May God grant us Holy Spirit for the understanding and application and speaking of his word. So Paul's saying in verse 12, if you're in Christ, it's because God, in his grace, chose you to be his own. You are holy, set apart for God. You didn't win over God's affection by how wonderful you were. He chose you in order to make you holy, and he chose to set his love upon you. So as God took the initiative to choose us, to set his love upon us, to make us a holy people. And he says, we're beloved because he chose to love us. Because we did not deserve God's love and were unlovely, this makes God's love all the more amazing. So he says, put on then, put on then as God's chosen, compassionate hearts, and so on. And we'll look at those things. He's not saying, put forth the best of your ability to show compassion. He's not saying, put on a false show of compassion and kindness and humility. He's not saying that either. He's saying, be who you are in Christ and, and uh, adopt the character of Christ because that's who, what he's provided for us. So that's what he means when he says, put on, therefore, these things. So what does he say? He, he tells us to put on five things. First of all, compassionate hearts. Literally, uh, the word for hearts referred in th- those days to the liver. So have a compassionate liver. You never thought about that. Mainly... It's just where they thought, you know, that your compassion came from the gut. So what he's saying, have compassionate hearts for one another from your gut. And we got to ask the question, can God command us to feel a certain way? Can he command us to have compassion, to, to have compassionate hearts? And the answer must be yes, because he's doing it. So, but he, remember, he's not saying just work it up in your own strength. He's saying... Uh, be who you are in Christ. And in Christ, we, we can have compassionate hearts. It's not like flipping a switch, but a prayerful pursuit. Grow into Christ's compassion. So have a compassionate heart. Have compassionate hearts. 
Kindness, which is goodness, or also means ready to help in times of need. It talks about God's gracious attitudes and acts towards sinners. Jesus said that God is kind to wicked and ungrateful people. And in that sense, he said, love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. So that God modeled for us kindness even to those who are unkind. Humility, uh, not being arrogant. Willing to serve and put others ahead of self. Jesus humbled himself, taking the form of a servant. He became obedient in his humbling of himself to the point of death on a cross. And Jesus said, learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly, or in other words, humble in heart. So Jesus was not weak, but he was humble. And that's similar to the next word. Meekness means gentleness. It means not being harsh. Jesus said he was gentle and lowly in heart. Again, um, not weakness, but considering others' needs and willingness to lay down your rights to submit your strength to their good. So compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience. Patience means long-suffering, suffering long, which endures wrong and puts up with exasperating conduct without complaining. Wow, that's a challenge, isn't it? Put up with exasperating conduct without complaining. And rather than flying into a rage. In fact, this is what Paul says in verse 13. These graces look like when you put on compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience toward others, then he says we're to bear with and forgive each other. So bearing with means being patient with others when they annoy and cause you trouble. Putting up with others' faults. So we could put that on our church sign outside. We're a church that puts up with other people. We put up with your faults. And even if you have a legitimate complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you. And you might say, well, you can't be serious. You know what they did to me? How can I possibly forgive because of what they've done? Paul says... We're to forgive each other as Christ has forgiven us. You say, I can't forgive them. That would mean I bear the wrong. Well, how does Paul say we are to forgive? As Christ forgave us. How did Christ forgive us? By bearing our wrongs in himself. He paid the price for our sins. So yes, by definition, sin means bearing the wrong of another person. What does that look like? What does it mean to bear the wrong of another person? It means I'm not going to hold it against them. I'm not going to be bitter. He says, we must forgive. So he says, so you must also forgive. And the root word of that word is grace. So because God has had grace toward us, we have grace toward other people. We forgive what they've done. Now, immediately we want to start coming up with all exceptions, don't we? Because what if they really do the big bad thing? Or what if, they, what if this, what if that? Well, let me just mention a couple what ifs and see how this works out. So what if the person... Um, What if the person does repetitive and unrepentant wrongs and they ask forgiveness? And oftentimes asking forgiveness is done like, sorry, sorry, do it again, sorry, do it again, sorry. And so you kind of suspect the repentance is not very deep if it's really there at all. And they're really scarcely even asking for it, but they're making some kind of motion toward that. Then what do you do? Well, you forgive them toward before the Lord even if the relationship can't be restored until the real repentance occurs. 
So you can unilaterally forgive someone even if the relationship cannot be restored because they're not actually responding in repentance. Or even if they uh, are not even seeking, pretending to repent at all. The same thing applies. If they wrong you and not only don't repent, they don't ask for forgiveness, you forgive them before the Lord because that's how Christ has forgiven us, isn't it? Even though the relationship can't be restored or reconciled until they repent and seek forgiveness, just as Jesus made provision for our forgiveness, but we didn't actually receive it until we received him. So that is the model for us. We provide for forgiveness by forgiving unilaterally, even though the relationship cannot really be restored until they receive and and repent. So you think about our relationship with the Lord, even though we have been reconciled to God, we still sin. Have you noticed that? A couple of us have noticed that. Yeah, I think we still sin and often aren't aware of it or minimize it or we don't really repent. I mean, how often is our repentance really completely right on? How often do we sin and not realize it? How often do we minimize our sin, just like people do to us? And yet, Christ continues to forgive us if we're in Him. So we're back to this definition. Forgiving means bearing the wrongs of others, not counting or holding the wrongs against those we forgive. Anyone can hold a grudge. How many of us love to, or just live to hold grudges? How many of us are good at holding grudges? You're not going to admit it, except... Thank you, Jim. Uh, we've all done it, and we all do it. And sometimes we deny that we do it. But then the grudge holds us, right? And in Christ, we can freely forgive and be free from bondage to bitterness and unforgiveness. So we, we put on these behaviors because they are true of us in Christ. Compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience. We bear with one another's wrongs, and we forgive those as Christ has forgiven us. And then in verse 14, Paul says, Above all these put on love. Above all these graces is love. Love is not just compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Love includes all of these, but it's more than that. Uh, We might say love is a joyful commitment in doing what is right and good for the ones we love. Love is a joyful commitment that delights to do what is good for other people. You may not feel that all the time, but that's what love is. It's a, it's a willing heart to do what's good for other people, no matter how they treat you. Love in the church earnestly seeks to bind together, to unite people together. That's what he says. Put on love which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Toward perfection, really, is what that's saying. So we love seeks to unite people, to, to deepen relationships that allow us to grow and be perfected in Christ, to mature in Him. Uh, God's people minister to serve one another so that in love we grow. I'm just going to mention a couple verses that are not going to be up on the screen from Ephesians chapter 4, verse 13. Paul says that we minister and serve one another until we all attain to the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. In other words, Paul's saying that we serve one another with a goal to help other, others mature in Christ and in a unified knowledge, we grow together in the knowledge of Christ. And he goes on and says a couple of verses later in 4.15 of Ephesians, we speak the truth in love, so that we grow up in every way into him who is the head. So in other words, love 
is, has a goal that I'm going to help you grow and you're going to help me grow in Christ. That's what love does. Love doesn't want us just to feel good. Love wants us to have what we need to grow and mature in Christ. So if you love your family, you love to see them grow into, if you're a Christian, you love to see them grow in Christ. You don't just love them by helping them to feel better only. You want to do good for them in order for them to grow. And sometimes that means we do and say hard things, but in love. Okay, so hopefully that's somewhat of a reality check. So in other words, as we put on Christ's love toward each other, we grow together in unified Christ-likeness. Love in the body, Paul is really talking so much about how we do things together, how we are unified together. And we're perfected and matured into the character of Christ corporately as a church, as a community of Christ. So loving one another helps us to grow and mature. We mature in Christ by being loved by others in the church and by exercising love toward others in the church. So love relationships in the church is not just rubbing each other's backs because often we rub one another the wrong way, right? It's love in the body of Christ wants you to grow in Christ's unity. It kind of sounds like it's difficult, which it is. But that is what Paul exhorts us to do. And then, in the next verse, we move to a different focus. He talks about letting the peace of Christ rule. Letting the peace of Christ rule in our hearts. The peace of Christ. Um, In the Hebrew, peace is the word shalom. You probably heard that word. And shalom has to do with health, strength, good order. As well as lack of turmoil and conflict and, and anxiety. Paul, Paul says we are let the peace of Christ rule, and that word rule means act as an umpire or a judge, to have control in our hearts. And he says we were called to Christ's peace in one body. God saved us by calling us to his Son, and in Christ we have peace with God and we have peace with one another. So once again, he's calling us to be what we are in Christ. God is reconciled to us in Christ, and we are reconciled to him. And in Christ, we have peace with one another. But just as we have to put on the graces of Christ to live out who we are, so that we have to do that in the body of Christ. Let the peace of Christ rule in our hearts. And since Christ is the head of the body, the church, the peace which God called us to in Christ, is the peace that should rule in the church. So, yes, we must each be controlled by the peace of Christ in our individual hearts. But living in Christ's peace is not just so we feel personal tranquility. It's so we are living in peace together under the good headship of Christ. That is, we are living in stability, harmony, not uh, chaotic. We're living in health in terms of relationships with one another. So when things go wrong with our physical or emotional well-being, we often call it a disorder. This or that disorder. Um, That means our bodies and emotions are not functioning as they are supposed to. There are conflicting signals not cooperating together as they are designed to. The parts follow their own agenda, so they're malfunctioning. Processes are malfunctioning. They're in conflict. So I'll take myself as an example. My body doesn't work right. Some of you may say that for yourself, but... Um, Many of you know that about two and a half years ago, I was diagnosed with Parkinson's. 
If you're newer here, you didn't know that. And so my body is not cooperating with itself. So the dopamine in my brain is not making it to evidently what works my right side. My right side doesn't work right. So those of you who have dopamine working right, you're, more, you're dopier than I am. <laughs> so you can take that. If you got nothing else out of the message today, you can take that home. So when our bodies aren't cooperating right, when the things aren't working together well, then we have problems. And you might wonder how, how I'm doing. Uh, it's worse than it was about two and a half years ago. But God in his grace continues to, give, to enable me to keep functioning. And you can pray for me. So this is just a, a shameless prayer request. Pray for me. At least once a week, can you put me somewhere in there and pray for me? Uh, I'd love for God to do a miraculous healing. That would be fantastic. I would not be disappointed at all. But in the meantime, if he could give me the grace to, to be sustained in the midst of what I'm dealing with, then, which he has been doing, that means mean it's easy. And that's the reality, isn't it? You know, in, in terms of how this applies to relationships in the body, uh, we're a nice church, we're a loving church, and so we really get along pretty well. But undoubtedly, there are struggles within us. I know that there are some. And, you, and I know that many of you have struggles outside of this church body as well. So when we're not functioning well together, then that's a problem. There's sickness. And so we need Christ. We need the peace of Christ to rule in our hearts. And if, if, I'm, the, if I'm the one that's got to take the initiative for that, then let's, let's be that one. Don't wait for other people to, to get it. Let the peace of Christ act as the umpire. Let it, oh, be the referee, right? Football, referee. The game will not be decided by referees today, hopefully. So, but let the peace of Christ rule in our body. So, in the body of Christ, we must live in his peace, following his agenda, not ours. Since Christ reconciled us to God, making peace by the blood of his cross, we, have, we all have need to live together in Christ's peace. We must keep fixated and focused on Christ to let his peace rule in the church. Otherwise, we will be fragmented or have false peace. Say it again. We must be fixated and focused on Christ to let his peace rule in the church. Otherwise, we'll be fragmented or have a false peace. And then Paul adds this little phrase. I wonder why he does. And be thankful. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. And be thankful. Well, I think the reason he says it there is because when we're constantly grateful for who Christ is and what he has done for us, that keeps us faith-focused on Christ in an attitude of gratitude. So our hearts are consumed with Jesus, which consumes any whining and complaining we might have about others in the church. At least that's how it's supposed to work. So keep focused on Christ. Be, be grateful. Be thankful to him. Man, how often do I catch myself up short that I have not been expressing thanksgiving to Jesus as often as he deserves, which is a lot, which is all the time. And that really freshens our hearts in the truth of who he is. Even in the mess that we're in. Relationships are messy. And the question we have to ask are, is it worth getting into the mess? And the only way we can survive the mess is through Christ. Otherwise, we're faking it or fragmenting. Okay, so that is the peace of Christ. We've talked about putting on Christ's love and compassion and kindness. We've talked about letting his peace rule. And finally, letting Christ's word richly dwell among us. We are to be a community where Christ's word richly dwells. 
What does it look like? Well, Paul says we do that by teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. Teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. Our gatherings must be a context where we are teaching one another about Christ and admonishing one another how to trust and live for Christ. And we are to do this not carelessly, but in prayerful wisdom that speaks Christ's tr- uh, truth and love. Now, how are we to do this? Well, Paul's focusing on this thing, so we're going to focus on it as well. This isn't the only way for, Paul, uh, for the word of Christ to richly dwell among us, but it's a very important way, because Paul says it is. And that is how we sing. He says we're to do this by singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. You say, really? What if I can't sing? Well, then you're out of luck. Uh, What if I hate to sing? Okay, let's just see what Paul says, and we'll see if we might help you a little bit with that. Have you ever noticed how much easier it is to remember ideas and words when they're put to music, whether for better or for worse? All right, if you are over 40 or so, what does this little jingle advertise? Plop, plop. Fizz, fizz. Oh, what a relief it is. Anybody know? Come on, admit it. Yeah, now, does that make you want to go out and buy that product? It doesn't me. I mean, these irritating little songs that advertisers spend millions of dollars every year to drive into our minds. It's like one of the main downsides of capitalism, right? Don't you hate when you can't get annoying songs out of your head? On the other hand, how great it is when songs with edifying, God-glorifying music, lyrics, uh, stick in your head and your heart. I was at a conference a couple weeks ago, and, and on the way home, two or three of the worship songs just kept playing in my head again and again and again. And I couldn't have given great detail what, the, what was taught, but I, the songs were, were getting me uh, further down the road as I, as I drove, just loving you know, the refreshment of my heart through those songs. So the reality is the music that we sing makes a big difference, a bigger difference than maybe we think. My former church, we, were, we would hold brief worship services at a nursing home. And there was a woman there who could not speak a word. All she could do was go like this. But when we would sing the hymns and songs, gospel songs that she knew from her youth, she could sing every word perfectly. Couldn't utter a word, but she could sing the words perfectly. And so I think what we sing is more powerful than we realize. It's not just going through religious motions. So the main purpose of psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, and I don't think they're making huge distinctions there, is like today. We sing some songs that are virtually taking the psalms and putting them to music, and other songs that are more uh, lyrically uh, uh, verbose and some that are more repetitive and like praise choruses. I think they had all those kinds of things then as well. Uh, anyway... Those things, those songs, it's so that the word of Christ, the truth of Christ, would richly dwell among us. So the main thing about the songs is, are you ready for this? The content. The content. Because that's really important, that we're singing truth about who Christ is and how do we live for Christ and how we're to honor and glorify him. Now, it's kind of nice when we like the, the actual music itself too, isn't it? And as you know, that can be a struggle. Sometimes it seems people have conflict more over music style than content. They would rather like the music and sing falsehood than to sing truth and maybe not be so crazy about the the tune. 
So an example in church history is in the 3rd and 4th centuries, uh, the church leaders were debating whether the scriptures taught that Christ was a created being or whether he was God. Whether he was the Son and Father were equal as God or whether the Son was less than God. And one of the teachers, one of the main instigators of the teaching that the Son was less than God was a man by the name of Arius. And one of the ways that Arius spread his teaching was he, he wrote all these little praise course ditties that taught false doctrine. And they spread like wildfire and they carried the, his teaching pretty far. So it's not to be uh, considered minor what we, that we sing truth about Christ. So we all have our music style preferences, and it's not possible to please everyone all the time. I know that all of you 100% of the time are totally pleased with all the music selections we make here, right? So that's not a problem here. But in some churches, they actually grumble sometimes that you're not having enough contemporary, enough traditional, and all of that kind of stuff. No, actually, we do have those struggles here. But let's keep pursuing what this passage says the main purpose of singing together is that Christ's word richly dwells among us in unified teaching and admonishing one another in Christ-centered truth. That means what we sing is a very important part of what we do. Now, singing truth about Christ in psalms and spiritual songs is not the only way for the word of Christ to richly dwell among us, but it obviously is a very important way. We do that and we study together. This is, this is written at a time when they didn't have Bibles uh, They would have scrolls, mostly of the Old Testament, and the New Testament was just starting to make its way around in terms of uh, scrolls. But you you didn't have Bibles, you didn't have study Bibles, you didn't have all kinds of resources at your hand. So it was really important for them to to be able to get the truth um, richly dwelling in their hearts to do that by singing. But I think we recognize today, like what we're doing with Harvest Kids, you know, those songs that that are capturing the kids' hearts with God's truth, is very, very important. And not only is the truth content important, but Paul says our attitude. He says, with thanksgiving. It seems like he's big on thanksgiving, like we should be thankful people. What's up with that? Thanksgiving. Um, so the word for thankfulness, again, comes from the word grace. So we freely and generously should give thanks to God who has poured out his grace upon us. In fact, that's the other thing. That the main audience when we sing together is... God, singing with your hearts with thanksgiving to God. And you say, well, I thought we were singing to one another. We were exhorting one another. We are admonishing one another. Yes, we're doing that. But the main point of this passage is that we do the most good for one another when we are most God-focused, when we're most Christ-focused. Our relationships are stronger and better and deeper when we are centered most on Christ and we directly just focus on one another. Now, we do focus on one another, but we put Christ first, and then that allows us, that gives us what we need to love people better and to glorify God better together. So in case we miss the point uh, that we are to be God-centered, Christ-focused in how we conduct relationships in the church, Paul says it again. He gives it as a general principle in verse 17. This is our last verse where he says, whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. This is a great truth for all of life, isn't it? I mean, wow. Don't you love that truth? Aren't you challenged by that truth? Whatever you do, everything you say and do, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus. Meaning, speak every word so as to honor his name. Man, that's incredible. 
Do we do that? How do you do this week? How do you do yet this morning? We have much to seek forgiveness for because we don't do it very well. But we do everything in keeping with Jesus' character and to glorify his name. That includes watching the Super Bowl. Yep, that's what he says. Everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So figure that one out. How do you watch the commercials? How do you maybe not watch the commercials and so on? Uh, So when we fail to honor the name of Jesus by uh, not honoring his name in everything we do, think, and say, we could still honor him by confessing how much we need his forgiveness, by going to the cross, by clinging to the gospel of Christ, by, by seeking renewal in relationship with him. So in the gospel, we can always find the way to honor Christ. And for all of us, much of the time it's going to be seeking forgiveness and cleansing and renewal through the gospel of Christ. And through Jesus, we can keep giving thanks to God the Father through Jesus. No matter what happens, no matter how we fail in relationships and how others fail us, because Christ is perfecting his work in us through our suffering that we encounter. A lot of our suffering is in relationships, isn't it? And so, but we have to recognize, if I'm going to give thanks, it's going to be because I recognize that Christ is accomplishing his good work in me as I have to rely upon him about my own relationship failings or about the way others fail me in relationships. So that's the truth. So the reason focusing on Christ, above even the people that we are to love, is obvious. Who knows how to love others better than Jesus? Who alone lives in the eternally perfect love relationship of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit than God himself. Who saved us from all of our sins, including our relationship failures with God and people? Who knows better what it is to put up with failures of, pe- of others, annoying people, people who don't get it, our enemies, and to be let down and betrayed by even friends than Jesus? Jesus knows perfectly well. He was the only perfect person who deserved to be treated perfectly, and he was let down again and again, and obviously he was crucified for our sins. So he knows how to heal and mend and reconcile relationships because he loves us, and that's the greatest truth that we have going for us. Who is more passionate for the unity of the church than Jesus? With that, I'll pray, and we'll close our time. Father, thank you for mending our relationship with you through your son, Jesus. Thank you that you perfectly modeled through us by sending your son what it is to put him on, so to speak, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, forgiving others as he has forgiven us, putting on love above all, letting his peace rule in our midst, letting his word dwell richly among us. Oh, Father, I thank you for Harvest Community Church, and we are far from perfect. Pastor is desperately far from perfect. But we love that we can trust you to do your good work in fulfilling these truths in our body. We pray, Father, that you would abundantly pour out your grace upon us so that we will begin living these truths out even more and more. And, Father, of course, beyond Harvest, where we have opportunity to represent this 
these attitudes and deeds of love and, and reconciling actions with those in our community, in our families, and among the nations. So help us, Father, to really take these truths to heart, to live in them, to love them, to seek you constantly, to have thankful hearts. As Paul mentioned three times in here, we are to be a thankful people, even in the midst of really, really, really hard relationship, conflicted, painful situations, as well as just to give you freely thanks for the good times when, when relationships are going well. But thank you, Father, that you, through Christ, you healed our worst problem, problematic relationship, which was with you, and you have reconciled us to yourself perfectly in him. So thank you for that truth. It's in his name we pray. Amen.